Welcome to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Josh Brewer. Each week on Profiles, we bring you conversations with members of our community, as well as visiting artists, scholars, and writers to hear the stories behind their work. Election Day is this Tuesday, November 8th. This has been one of the longest and strangest elections in U.S. history. The possibility of the first female president, the rise of Donald Trump, and the divisiveness of the candidates have challenged and fascinated the American people and journalists. Today on the program, we'll hear a conversation with New York Times journalist Roger Cohen. Cohen has followed the 2016 election closely, writing for the Times op-ed column. Elaine Monahan spoke with Roger Cohen last month. Our guest today is Roger Cohen, who has been a New York Times columnist since 2009, writing mainly about international affairs and diplomacy, though his columns have also focused on the presidential race between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Raised in South Africa and London, Roger read French and history at Oxford before heading for Paris as a freelance journalist and later joining Reuters in 1979. After a four-year stint with the International News Agency, based in London, Brussels and Rome, Roger opened the Wall Street Journal Europe office in the Italian capital, later moving to Rio de Janeiro, where he opened another Wall Street Journal office as chief correspondent for South America. There he was hired by the New York Times, where he has remained ever since, serving as economic correspondent in Paris, Balkan bureau chief and foreign editor. Roger has won numerous awards for his reporting and writing and has twice been nominated for a Pulitzer. In January, he will celebrate his 27th anniversary at the New York Times. He is visiting Bloomington under the auspices of his new role as the inaugural chair of Indiana University Bloomington's Pointer Centre, whose mission is to explore intersections between ethics, media and public institutions. Welcome, Roger. Thank you, Elaine. It's wonderful to have you here today. I'd like to start by asking you about your most recent book, uh, The Girl from Human Street, Ghosts of Memory in Jewish Family, an incredibly moving and beautifully written history of your extended family in which you grapple with the pain of separation from the land of one's childhood. You write about your mother, June and the pain of her move from South Africa to London, like this. In London, she could not have the jacaranda and the frangipani, the mimosa and the palms, the distant horizons and the warm breezes of her youth. But in our house on a hill, she tried to recreate some of that ease. Like those yellow peaches, unavailable in the Northern Hemisphere, she was not made to be lifted out of her environment. Her uprooting had been harsh, from privilege to the austerity of 1950s England, a nation spent by the war. That solid London house with its familiar feel of the garden suburb furnished some strand of continuity, a sanctuary. Because of this, she would never forgive herself for precipitating its loss. Tell us about your mother. Why did you, in this book, decide particularly to focus on her story? Because my mother's story would not leave me alone. She died 17 years ago in 1999, and 
as that passage uh, indicates, uh, she was a transplant that never really took in Britain, uh, lifted out of South Africa, where my family had made good. They were Jewish immigrants from Lithuania and deposited in post-war London with its rationing, pregnant with my younger sister. And she had a breakdown after my sister was born, uh, then known as post-puerperal psychosis, now more generally known as postpartum depression. Uh, she disappeared into psychiatric institutions for a couple of years, and for the last 20, 25 years of her life suffered from manic depression. She was bipolar. And I didn't really feel I understood what had happened to her. We didn't talk a lot about the past. Like many immigrants whose main goal is to assimilate, uh, we had to leave the past behind. Um, and you know, Elaine, I think if the, the bright star of immigration is new opportunity, uh, new hope, the American dream, if you like, it's black sun is loss. And I wanted to explore that and at the same time explore a wider story of Jewish migration, displacement across the 20th century. Not only Jewish, human, because it's very much a human condition these days. So much of humanity is on the move. So what did you learn? What was the most important lesson for you out of that journey that you took in the writing of this book? Well, you know, Elaine, I was, uh, I talked about assimilation. We didn't hide who we were. My family name is Cohen. There's no more uh, conspicuously Jewish family name than that. Uh, my father had been advised uh, to change his name before leaving South Africa by a concerned aunt of his who said that he would never make his way in Britain as a Cohen. And uh, my dad said, well, maybe you have a point. Let me go away and think about that. Uh, came back a week later and told her that, um, yes, on reflection, she was probably right, and he decided to change his name. And she said, well, darling, that's wonderful. To what? And he said, Einstein. <laughs> and uh, that was the end of that story. But our Jewish past, our Jewish history was, was, was not really known. I went back to South Africa. I went back to Lithuania. I'd been raised um, as if we'd been in Britain since the Norman Conquest in 1066. <laughs> and I found myself at a wonderful private school, Westminster School, sitting in Westminster Abbey every morning, staring vaguely at the beautiful stained glass windows. And there's a place that is continuity itself, the very opposite of my family's story here. Yeah coronation of William the Conqueror took place there, a thousand years of continuity. And I began to realize, um, in fact, initially at school when I was sometimes called an effing yid uh, when I was about 12, 13, in arguments and fights uh, with other kids. And, uh, you know, I began to think about being Jewish for the first time. So in answer to your question, I think two things. One is I at last understood where I came from, and I think that's important for anybody. I also got to the bottom of my mother's story, where she'd gone when she'd disappeared from my life when I was two, mm. um, which obviously had a huge impact on my psyche, uh, one that I couldn't put into words at that time, of course, but um, the most important figure in my life, my mother, disappeared. 
And I managed through Britain's Freedom of Information Act to find fragments of her medical records. And uh, I know, for example, now that on July 30, 1958, three days before my third birthday, she was having uh, electric shock treatment, which in the 50s was not what it is today. The whole body would shudder. I'm sure many listeners have seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or read Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar. Sylvia Plath had the same kind of treatment at the same time. And so now I can picture my mother. I know what happened to her. And you might say, well, why on earth would you want to know that? And it is um, painful and hard. But I think it's better when you can deal with facts rather than deal with something that's unknown and blank. How did your family members react to this quest that you went on? Mostly positively. My father even was um, helpful. He he gave me material. He, unfortunately, he's very old now. He's 95 and very remote. Um, so it's not been easy for me to have a real conversation. By the time it was finished, uh, it became difficult to engage with him. But supportive on the whole, part of the book is set in, in Israel, where I decided to look at another family member who was also manic depressive, um, a cousin of mine who committed suicide when she was 28 in Tel Aviv. And this was obviously a very painful story for her parents. And there was a lot of back and forth in uh, in trying to um, get them to cooperate with me, um, which they did, but with a lot of hesitations. And uh, so so that part was, was difficult. Uh, but in general, I would say... Uh, positive. What did you conclude, if it's possible to say that so definitively, about the cause of your mother's ill health? Well, I can't prove it scientifically, Elaine, but I always felt about my mother that she had been lifted out of her comfort zone. Uh, At the end of her life, She always, the last 10, 15 years, any opportunity she had, she would go back to South Africa. She missed the sun. She missed uh, the comfort. She missed the community, the Jewish community, people dropping in, uh, going down to Cape Town, the local deli, uh, the locks and bagels. uh, And I think it was a strain for her. All her closest friends in in England were Jewish women of of that generation. She was perhaps the last generation of highly intelligent, highly educated women for whom there was still an assumption that their role in life would be to support their husbands. She did become a magistrate, but uh, by that time she was already becoming bipolar and so was had to resign at a certain point. So I can't prove to you that had she never left South Africa, this would not have happened. But I think it was an immense strain on her psyche. And I do think we underestimate the strain of beginning again. It's very hard beginning your life again, far from your family, far from friends, in an unfamiliar environment. It's tough. Uh, This reinvention can have wonderful consequences. But it's not an easy thing to do. And I think for my mother, arriving in Britain with a pregnant, as I said, with a 
hard-driving young husband who went on to a brilliant medical career. It was uh, an immense strain that uh, pushed her over the edge. Clearly, this condition is in the family gene, and it's well known that the bipolar condition does have a genetic, a family component. And um, I think one precipitating factor that really pushed me over the edge into finally writing a book I'd been thinking about for a long time was being up in Wales where my father had bought a house. Uh, now, my mother wanted a house in the sun. My father bought a house in windy, rainy, cold Wales. Absolutely beautiful place, but probably the opposite of what my mother would have dreamed of. Uh, she went up there. She tried to make the best of it. But anyway, in the attic there, after my mother died, I found a trunk. This is a trunk in the attic story. And in it were my father's notes, um, notes of a doctor, notes of a husband, on uh, my mother's, the Annus Horribilis of 1978, when my mother broke down, uh, attempted suicide, very serious, her suicide letter. She survived by a miracle. And in it, there was a family tree that my father had drawn up, and he'd placed a black dot beside every member of the family who'd suffered from some kind of mental illness. And there were more names with black dots beside them than not. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Elaine Monaghan. Our guest today is the New York Times columnist and author, Roger Cohen. Roger, we've been talking about your most recent book, which is a family history, essentially. Um, and you were discu- we've been discussing your mother. How do you connect the story of your mother's history and your own decision to become a journalist? I've been running around all my life, and adrenaline is, is very much part of the... Um, journalist's condition. And at a certain point, I felt that I was running away from something. I wasn't just running because there was a great story. Um, And that the most dangerous condition for me would be stillness. And uh, the most treacherous but important way to turn my gaze was, was inward. And, you know, I'd been drawn to war zones. I'd been in Beirut in the 80s. Uh, I'd been in uh, Bosnia, covering the war in Bosnia for the New York Times and the breakup of Yugoslavia. And indeed, I'd written a book about that. And um, I was often dealing with uh, people in pain, um, people who had lost relatives, people whose family had been killed, people who were refugees. And I was fascinated by their stories, and I always wanted to tell stories as a journalist and get inside people's heads and tell wider stories through individual stories. That was really the essence of what I wanted to do as a journalist. And it occurred to me at a certain point that this displacement, this losing of something, was also my story. Uh, we, We were a Jewish family that managed to Uh, circumvent the Holocaust in the 20th century by going from Lithuania to South Africa. But still, there was this repetitive trauma in every generation of of displacement. And it was too much for my mother, as I've said. And so I, I think that having suffered through what my mother went through, I was... Um, 
I was drawn in some way to these stories of pain and tried for a long time perhaps to divert myself from an essential story for me, which was my own, uh, by telling the stories of others. You must find yourself dwelling a lot on the situation faced by refugees and migrants today, perhaps particularly this, the many images we've seen out of um, Europe of Syrians <coughs> arriving desperate for shelter um, and beginning to come to the United States also. Um, how do you react to that as a human being, as a journalist? Is your response the same? Do you find yourself, your journalist identity and your personal identity kind of coming together on that issue? Well, it's viscerally human and tangible for me. I've, I've been over the course of my life in, in, in many, many, uh, I know that rancid smell, that, that feeling of people sleeping on the floor, people who've lost everything, and uh, of course, I the only previous time when there have been this many people on the move was was 1945. And of course, I connect it with with the Jewish story, with so those Jews who'd survived in 1945, uh, and many had not. Uh, their situation was similar. And before the war, what had Jews encountered? They had encountered doors that were closed. And if my family had not left their small town in Lithuania called Zagare, near the Latvian border. Uh, I found out in, in researching my book what would have happened. It's very clear. I would not be here on October the 3rd, 1941. The 2,400 Jews of Zagare were lined up in the main square and then marched out to the woods and shot men, women, children, babies, Babies were just beaten against trees to save ammunition, and they were thrown into a pit. So I know that. I know, I know that story, and I can't help, both through my professional experience of covering wars and what's written into me because of where I come from, which I now know in, in a great deal of detail, um, it's a very visceral thing for me. And when I it's something very de deep in, in in many human beings. The, the the viewing the stranger as as threatening or as uh, a possible menace is going to disrupt our lives. Um, but I have found the reaction in Europe, uh, apart from Germany, uh, where Chancellor Merkel has done a remarkable thing by letting in more than a million uh, refugees uh, and asylum seekers. It's so short-sighted, I think, and it, it fails to take into account history. It, it's so mean-spirited. You don't become a refugee because you have a choice. You become a refugee because you no longer have a choice. You don't put, as a Syrian from Damascus, your child in a small dinghy on the high seas uh, because you have a choice. You do it because you know if you stay where you were, you're going to get killed. And close to half a million Syrians are dead. More than five million are refugees. More than 12 million are displaced. This is the biggest single tragedy in, in the Middle East um, since, uh, since World War II. And uh, it's on an almost unimaginable scale. So 
Uh, I hope that that Chancellor Merkel's example um, inspires people, but I don't see too much sign of that for the moment. In fact, here in Bloomington, we've recently heard news that we will be welcoming 60 refugees mm. from Syria and the Democratic Republic of Congo. And many people have been very welcoming, but mm. there are some people who are afraid. Yeah. Do you have a message for those people if you could sit down with them and say, do not be afraid, what would you say? Look, these um, human beings like the rest of us, They what do they want? They want to have shelter. They want to have a roof over their heads. They want to work. They want the dignity that goes with working because if you don't work, you lose your dignity. And uh, many of them um, are professionals. Uh, sure, if you take in a million people, there might be 20 <laughs> who are in some way threatening or who should not have been let in. But the vast bulk of um, these people... Uh, just want an opportunity to live a decent life. And what is the United States of America, at least for me? I'm a naturalized American. Uh, America is the constant renewal um, and reinvention and churn and inventiveness that comes with immigrant waves. Tell us about your children, please. Well, uh, I have four children. Um, the world being what it is, they're, uh, they're scattered around. Uh, one is a, a doctor in New Mexico. One is a, in business in Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City, importing high-end liquor, single malt whiskeys and uh, Patron tequila and other things for the new Vietnamese uh, upper middle class who want Western brands like their Chinese counterparts. One wants to be a chef or run a restaurant. He just graduated from Boston University. He's working in a restaurant in Boston, passionate about food. And my daughter, my youngest, is a sophomore at USC in Los Angeles, University of Southern California. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Elaine Monaghan. Our guest today is the New York Times columnist and author, Roger Cohen. He is visiting Bloomington under the auspices of his new role as the inaugural chair of Indiana University Bloomington's Pointer Center. listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Elaine Monaghan. Our guest today is the New York Times columnist and author Roger Cohen. Roger, you were talking about the threat of disintegration in, in Europe. Um, and of course, you experienced the 
very terrible consequences of disintegration as a correspondent covering Sarajevo. Um, and you wrote a wonderful book, Hearts Grown Brutal, Sagas of Sarajevo, in which you tell the story of four families experiencing the Bosnian War of 92 to 95, which you call a war of intimate betrayals. How do you think about that war now? Does it come back to your mind as you watch this process of potential disintegration in Europe? Does it alarm you that you... Yes, it does, Elaine. I think it's the most combustible moment in my lifetime. Um, The tectonic plates of the world order are shifting. American power is not what it was. Um, President Putin of Russia has annexed part of a neighboring country, started a nasty little war in the eastern part of Ukraine. And we've all been reminded that this European stability that we had begun to take for granted uh, should not be taken for granted. Uh, History proves that. And the Balkan Wars for my generation were a shock, an absolute shock. The Berlin Wall had fallen. Europe was whole and free. It was a euphoric moment. And suddenly, um, this country that had been held together by the iron will of a communist leader, Tito, uh, but was composed uh, of different nations that had been unified uh, in Yugoslavia, Serbia, Croatia, Bosnia, Macedonia, um, began to break up violently. And anyone covering that realized how easy it is to inject the virus of hatred into seemingly stable situations and cause a violent, brutal eruption. That's why I spoke of intimate betrayals. And that's why I chose, I said that I like to tell stories through people. And I decided to focus on families that I'd met, four families that were mixed families, um, Muslim, Serb, Bosnian Muslim, Serb, uh, Croat, Serb, Croat, Bosnian. And see how these families, how people suddenly became strangers. You know, here was the guy next door, perfectly cordial, normal relations with that person, and suddenly he's pointing a gun at your head uh, because, you're, because you're a Bosnian Muslim and uh, he's a Serb. And it can be done when you have fanatical nationalism of the kind stirred up by Slobodan Milosevic, the then uh, leader of Serbia, um, you stir up in people a sense of past grievances, the need for vengeance, Serbia being cheated of what it had a right to in terms of territory, a bit like what President Putin uh, is doing today. I mean, Russia is not doing that well, but he's got a whole lot of diversionary tactics um, in Syria, in Ukraine, Russia, biggest country on earth, encircled, quote unquote, by the West, please, (laughs) encircled by who? Encircled by the demons in President Putin's mind. I call him homo sovieticus redux. Uh, He is um, a KGB man and will be um, to the end of his days. But yes, I do worry. I I worry uh, a lot. And uh, You know, if you'd said to me five years ago the European Union could break up, I would have laughed. Today, I still think it's very unlikely. But do I dismiss it out of hand? Um, No. 
in, in the epilogue of your book, Hearts Grown Brutal, yeah. you talk about meeting with an American diplomat named Ron Nitzke. Yes. And he hands you a paper that he wrote. Mm. Um, but Bosnia was not the Holocaust. And in it, he writes, there were echoes of the Holocaust all over Bosnia and nowhere more so than in our profound failure to measure up to the challenge. I find it impossible reading those words not to think of Syria yeah. and of all the forgotten wars mm. around the globe. Mm. And I just, I have to ask you, mm. has that experience shaped your views mm. of US policy mm. on Syria? I mean, Ron Neitsky to me was the very essence of an American Foreign Service officer. Uh, an honorable man, deeply, deeply troubled uh, by what he witnessed in Bosnia. I, the best of the Foreign Service, like Chris Stevens, another friend of mine, killed in Benghazi. Uh, and if Chris Stevens knew uh, what had been made of his death, uh, the manipulations, the contortions, the accusations, it's really most foul. And uh, I know that he would have been appalled. Um, but Ron Neitsky pointed to something that was true. Um, for three and a half years, while uh, I and other correspondents sat in Sarajevo watching the bombardment of women, children, the encirclement of a European city that had hosted the Olympics, the Winter Olympics, uh, and all the circumlocutions and evasions by which politicians, including for a long time President Bill Clinton, before he did decide to act, and NATO bombarded uh, Sarajevo briefly and bombed it, and that ended uh, the encirclement. You can't help watching Syria and uh, feeling that there's been a tremendous failure of the West. Of course, it's not the only contributing factor, but I think it's very, very serious when the President of the United States sets a red line uh, as President Obama did against the use of chemical weapons in Syria. President Bashar al-Assad uses said chemical weapons. The Secretary of State goes out under instructions, obviously, from the president, makes a moving speech that sets the scene for a military response, a contained, not troops on the ground, but three or four days of bombing of certain selected sites, and then, at the last minute, the president steps back, goes for a walk in the Rose Garden, and changes his mind. Uh, and if we've watched for the last three years President Putin step out, take control, annex Crimea, we said for a long time military force can't shape the outcome in Syria. Well, what is President Putin uh, doing today? And uh, I think also when the U.S. president says as President Obama did early in the war, that it's over for President Bashar al-Assad. It's over, as he did say, but has no plan to make that come about. It's also very serious. So I think we've seen a very conspicuous failure uh, in Syria, which we should recall began as an uprising, part of the Arab Spring. Syrians wanting an end to the dictatorship, the Assad family in power for more than four decades. And um, what did Bashar al-Assad do when those people rose up for the things we as Americans believe in? Democracy, freedom, the right to vote, um, the right to a decent life. 
he started shooting them. He started killing them right from the get-go. He started killing them. And here we are, five and a half years later. Perhaps one of the most troubling things for we journalists and lovers of journalism mm. about the war is is how difficult it is to cover. Yes. Of course, it's become immensely more dangerous in some respects for journalists to cover wars, yeah. perhaps even than it used to be. Do you have any um, magical notions about how we can start to address some of those problems, how we can make it easier for journalists to do their jobs in situations like that? I don't think I do, Elaine. It's a very, very, very difficult. It is different from Bosnia. Um, you know, here, Western journalists are being targeted. It did happen in Bosnia occasionally, but uh, in Syria, we're targeted as journalists. Uh, we're targeted for not being, by the Islamic State, for not being Muslim. We're targets, and that makes it exponentially uh, more difficult. We can work with uh, local journalists. Um, we can try to get people into Aleppo, but it's extremely dangerous. And for many news organizations, it's just too dangerous. Um, they, the risks are unacceptable. Um, Jim Foley, journalist, was beheaded by the Islamic State. And um, we've seen many other journalists die in Syria. So it's really um, outrageous that journalists should be targeted for doing their jobs. Uh, it's very important that we be able to cover conflict, but um, it's more and more difficult, and I, beyond uh, working more and more with local staff and uh, trying to be as ingenious as possible in, in ways of getting people close to the story, because there is no substitute to, to being there, to bearing witness. Um, I mean, I was in Iran in 2009 when the uprising began after the fraudulent election of 2009. And I was, for various reasons, among the last Western journalists um, out of there. And I'd seen very brave people, um, notably women, uh, being beaten, being uh, shot at. And it was a pivotal moment uh, for Iran. And I felt such a sense of betrayal when I left, you know, that because my visa had finally run out, I, I was quite desperate. I had all sorts of ideas of, like, going into hiding or, I don't know. I, it's so important to have people on the ground. There is no substitute for it. Um, being there and bearing witness is what journalism is all about. And if we can't be there, if we can't have what Martha Gellhorn, um, great British journalist during World War II, and Hemingway's wife, of course, also, what she called the view from the ground, then what's left? <laughs> Speaking of the view from the ground, mm. you became foreign editor for the New York Times the day before the September 11th attacks. Mm. How did that experience affect you as a journalist, as a, as a human being? Yeah, I just uh, arrived in New York with my family from Berlin, where I'd been correspondent, and uh, I, was, I was appointed foreign editor on September 10. In fact, there's a small story in the New York Times of September 11, least read newspaper, probably after 9 a.m. of any we've ever published uh, about my appointment. And uh, 
Uh, yeah, I just dropped my son at school in Brooklyn, and I was down um, at the bottom of Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn, where you have a view of downtown. And it was a beautiful morning, as we all recall. And there was a guy at the windows down, obviously in the car, and the guy next to me said, hey, look, the World Trade Center's on fire. And then I, as I turned, I felt the boom and shudder of the second plane going in. And I think I got the last subway uh, from Clark Street on the 2-3 line that goes under the World Trade Center, the last one that was running, and managed to get to the New York Times at Times Square um, and got to my desk shortly before the first tower came down. It's one of those moments, Elaine, where, you know, you're a New Yorker, you're a human being, there are thousands of people dead in your city, uh, and you're a pro, or at least you hope you're a pro. For me, that's the highest compliment for any journalist. You're a pro. You get the job done. You get the story written. You get it filed. You get it edited, and you get it into the paper. Otherwise, it's worthless. And so I had a job to do. It was a job I hadn't done (laughs) previously. And it very quickly became apparent that there was a huge foreign component to the story because it was the work of al-Qaeda. So getting correspondence, you know, into Saudi Arabia, into the Middle East, into Afghanistan, uh, and tremendous adrenaline rush, um, you know, in those situations. And you do focus, you know, you just push everything else out and you do what has to be done. But I remember, I think it was on day three, I came out. I mean, that night, actually, I remember coming out into Times Square around 10 that evening, and there was not another human being in Times Square in New York City. That is something I'll never I stood alone in Times Square. But anyway, like three days later, I these um, photographs had started going up of missing people and people asking if anyone had seen these people. And I... I um, I was walking and there was one that it was an ultrasound and it underneath it said uh, looking for the father of this child and I stared at it it took me a moment to realize what it was what it meant and then I just started sobbing I just completely broke down and uh, I think as journalists you know there is a tremendous human undertow that we suppress you know that we just push aside because it's not easy being uh, being in a war. It's not easy uh, covering an event like 9-11 because you have to get the job done, but you're witnessing the most devastating things. Anyway, I, I, I broke down and uh, took me a while to put myself together again. And it was just, um, you know, it's there. I mean, we, we're human. <laughs> You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I am Elaine Monaghan. Our guest today is the New York Times columnist and author, Roger Cohen. He is visiting Bloomington under the auspices of his new role as the inaugural chair of Indiana University Bloomington's Pointer Center, whose mission is to explore intersections between ethics, media and public institutions. So, Roger, I... I think we've all been very um, intrigued um, by your columns about the elections. You normally focus on international relations and diplomacy and events around the globe. But of course, the election of a president in the United States has an effect on all of us and clearly also on you. There's one column in particular, um, which you called The Great Unraveling. 
in which you noted beheadings by ISIS, Russia's annexation of part of Ukraine, the, the prospect of Scottish independence, American disengagement in the Middle East, a rise in anti-Semitism, the Ebola epidemic. Um, and you, you wrote from the perspective of, of a, a future historian that nobody could connect the dots of this dystopic reality until it was too late and people could see the great unravelling for what it was and what it had wrought. Mm. We're in the midst of a presidential election you've said is unlike any other. It's atypical. So I'm I'm wondering, from the perspective of some time later, having written this column, how does the great unravelling seem to you now? Well, I think that as columnists, we get plenty of things wrong. Occasionally, we get something right and look in some way prescient. Um, I don't think I'd really take back much of that column, which was written a couple of years ago. Um, Scotland did not vote to leave um, the Union, to leave uh, the United Kingdom, Britain, um, at that time. But I think following the Brexit vote, uh, that issue may well come round again because Scotland wants to be in the European Union, um, the majority of Scots. And now in the United States, I think um, there's a wave of disquiet and anger that is behind the candidacy of Donald Trump. Trump has plugged in to this anger. Think what you will of him. And uh, frankly, I don't think a whole lot, as will be clear to anyone who's read my columns. But uh, he has identified and become the vehicle for this anger, this feeling that the elites, um, political, financial, uh, they're out for themselves. They grant themselves impunity. A disaster happens like the financial meltdown of 2008. Hundreds of thousands of people, millions lose their homes. And um, does anyone face the consequences for that? Uh, nobody. The Iraq war has had some terrible consequences, including all the... Uh, it's certainly a contributing factor to what we're seeing in Syria today. Factories disappearing. The sense that there are global forces at work that have put people's lives outside their control, two-on-one wars uh, in the last, uh, since 9-11, trillions spent, um, thousands dead, uh, hundreds of thousands of vets um, wounded, either physically or mentally, and anger about that. And uh, uh, I think what you saw in Brexit was disruption at any cost, disruption at any cost. President Obama can come and tell us it's a bad idea, uh, big corporations can tell us that we're going to pull out, that they're going to pull out if uh, the vote is to leave. We don't care. Uh, we've got one way to send our message, and we're going to send it. And, you know, that's, that's where we are. And I think we have to accept that democracy and globalization have not been delivering. They've not been delivering for the more vulnerable in society. They've been delivering for the very rich, yeah. They've been delivering for people who have capital and who can set up factories in Vietnam or Indonesia or the Philippines, where, of course, corresponding tens of millions to the jobs that have been lost here have been created there. But if you're sitting in Ohio, that's not a great deal of comfort. Or in Kentucky, where I recently was in the coal country. So 
I think there is an unraveling going on. Uh, moments of transition in history are always dangerous. They always have been historically. And the fact is that American power is still very great. I'm a great believer in the United States. I'm a naturalized American, a little bit starry-eyed. I think this country will continue, it's still young, will continue reinventing itself. But the degree of domination that the United States had for much of the 20th century, um, that's gone. And President Obama has signaled to some degree that uh, U.S. power will not be used in the same way. So we're in that unraveling, and it's dangerous. Actually, speaking of your trip to Kentucky, you spoke with many supporters of Trump mm. and brought back a complex view of, of how that part of the mm. country sees the election process. Mm. Um, but you were also there as a journalist, and as you've mm. pointed out, and as we all know, the degree of confidence and trust in journalists is perhaps at an all-time low. Yeah. How were you greeted when you <laughs> went there? Everybody was very, very friendly. Uh, I didn't encounter any hostility. Uh, I wandered into a lot of cafes, restaurants, various places, bars, and, and started chatting to people. Um, as I said, I believe in the view from the ground, even as a columnist where I'm paid to a pine more than anything. But I, I was really sick of sitting in New York at, at these liberal dinner parties listening to everyone's sound off, tr try to find the funniest, slickest, most effective put-down of, of Trump. Well, fine. But 13.3 million people, a record, voted for him in the primaries. And tens of millions are about to vote for him November 8. And I wanted to you know, dig into that phenomenon. Um, and of course, nobody that I spoke to was uh, stupid at all. I mean, uh, if you've had a job in coal for 20 years and then you don't have one and you have four kids and you feel that the Obama administration has moved the goalposts uh, with regulations that made it impossible for the mine in which you work to carry on, um, and you're trying to make your house payment or your car payment, and you're hearing about uh, you know ice caps melting uh, in Iceland uh, and that, uh, or in uh, the, at the pole, that this is you know being described as more important than what's happening to you. It, it's very interesting to, to just to look at it. And a lot of people said, look, Donald Trump's a loose cannon. He's dangerous. He tells it like it is. We like that. And even if we think he could lead us into a war, we're going to vote for him. Well, you might say that is stupid. Uh, but he didn't feel it. It was, it was an exasperation. And of course, on the other side, you have a flam family, the Clintons, that's either been in the White House or around the summit of a discredited political system and political establishment for a quarter century now. And a lot of people just feel the idea of the Clintons back in the White House, they just block. They're not going to do it. And they're angry for some of the reasons I described. And uh, I feel like I felt like I came away with a better understanding. Of course, uh, you know, the lies of Donald Trump and and this strange journey of the Republican Party has been on into kind of mytholand, um, which enabled, uh, I think, Donald Trump's uh, anti-factual coup d'etat, if you like. I mean, all that and the way the Republican Party set out to block the president at every turn. Uh, this has polarized the country. But there's also an element 
you know, the liberal thinking, which holds that they have a stranglehold on truth, that there's only one possible view on guns, one possible view on God, one possible view on choose your gender bathrooms. You know, there's been a big, big cultural shift in the United States, and some people uh, are not comfortable with it. And, uh, you know, that kind of liberal contempt, uh, Hillary Clinton's unfortunate remark about the deplorables, uh, that Donald Trump is followed by a bunch of deplorables. You know, that's the kind of thing, it bothers me, and I think it, it, it clearly accentuates divisions in the country. So in the media school here in, in Bloomington, um, we often spend time discussing how one conducts the craft of being a journalist. And some, sometimes the question often arises, well, what do you actually do when you walk into one of these cafes or bars? Which is, how do you strike up a conversation like that with somebody who's never met you before and they're like, who's this person coming up yeah. to me and just randomly talking to me? How do you handle that moment? It, it, it can be a little awkward, but I just generally say, um, hi, um, excuse me, I'm, I'm a columnist for New York Times. Uh, I'm here trying to understand uh, the political scene in X, Kentucky, let's say. Uh, do you have a moment? And uh, often people have a moment. Sometimes they don't. Fine. And, uh, you know, then you want to ease into a conversation. You probably don't want to start with, why the heck are you voting for Donald Trump, you know? Or I I still love doing that. I still love, uh, you know, the unexpected discoveries. And and I like I like to spend time with people. I mean, I'd rather do two, three provided the person seems interesting. I'd rather do two, three in-depth, you know, spend really some time or maybe get a phone number and come back and pursue it later than, uh, you know, try to interview 20 people for 15 minutes. I, I just think, uh, you know, when you dig into people, they all have, nearly all have very, very interesting and revealing stories. So that's that's what I try to do when I'm when I'm working. How has the transition been from being a reporter who is essentially invisible in the story to being a columnist who's twice a week telling everyone what he thinks? Well, it takes time. It wasn't easy initially. Um, it's also a change of form. A column is 800 words, never changes. So uh, it depends on pithiness, succinctness, and it depends on ideas. It needs at least one idea, maybe one and a half ideas, you know, to give it a twist in the bottom half. And and it's very different from just um, straight out reporting. And, and you, yeah, you have to reveal your opinion. So it is a, it's not an easy transition. And, you know, some people you say, well, I, what do you do for a living? Well, I write 200, eight, two 800 word stories, a week, pieces a week. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> too, whoa, that's nothing. Believe me, it's something to ask anybody to have two semi-original ideas in a week is a lot. And Bill Sapphire, the late Bill Sapphire, great Times columnist, uh, you know, compared it to living under a under a windmill. Um, you avoid one blade of the windmill that passes you by, and look up, and the other's coming to get you. And I think there's something to that. And it's important to try to clear your mind, I think, for a bit after you've finished one. Um, and also not, there's such a cacophony cacophony these days out in the media scene, social media. Uh, you know, we all lose an hour and a half, two hours a day, you know, when we go to uh, 
smartphone and we, we're planning to do something we we notice something else then we see something else on twitter then we read then we we've forgotten what we originally intended to do and or at least at my age you have and then you go around uh around and around and uh so i need to kind of turn all that off for a bit to try and think for myself still it must be quite therapeutic being able to use words that you would never have been able to put in your own voice in the past so yeah. you know your piece on the trump possibility in october mm. in which you described him as a thug mm. who talks gibberish and lies and cheats and has issues to put it mildly with women mm. what do you get much of a response from people who would disagree with you about yeah, this yeah i did in that column and I really, I finally kind of lost it in the, you know, after the Twitter storm about the Venezuelan Miss Universe and the, uh, the whole, the revelation, uh, um, what we know now about Donald Trump's character after a year of the exposure it's had, and uh, so many incidents, so many lies, uh, and I finally. Yeah, I just that that column actually almost wrote itself in about an hour and a half, which is about half the time it normally takes me to write a column, and and uh, it had an extraordinary response too. I mean, there were there were uh, people who were angry, but there were a lot of people who liked the column a lot. I mean, clearly, thug is a very strong word, and uh, I thought about it a lot, but I felt it was justified, and. Uh, there is a violence to his campaign. There's a violence to his language. There's a violence to his body language. Uh, you know, he made his name saying, you're fired. And, you know, clearly that sends a frisson. Uh, people react to that. And um, they're drawn to it in some way. There's something in human nature that is that can be swayed by authority, particularly if you're feeling uncertain about your life and want direction and want to believe in something. And Trump's very astute in that way. I think he's, uh, you know, he's plugged into that. He's he gets it, and it's troubling. And uh, I think, uh, I think he's dangerous because not because of what he says, because he says everything and the contrary of everything, but mainly because of this hair trigger temper, this vast, huge ego, the uh, his bullying nature, and you combine that with the most powerful uh, job in the world and. Um, his fingers on the nuclear button. Um, I think the institutions of American democracy and the republic are stronger even than Donald Trump, but I could, it makes me very uneasy, uh, that idea. And, uh, you know, by thug I meant bully. He's a bully. He pushes people around. He's mean. He's nasty. And we've seen that again and again. So even looking back on that column, I feel that the language was justified. In this instance, it's not, you know, it's not language that I would normally use. But uh, you know, we're at a very grave moment here. We've got a few weeks to go to the election, and I think I didn't want to look back on it on what I'd written and feel well. I never actually said what I what I feel. I mean, of course, I'd written critical columns about Trump previously, but never quite as directly uh, with language that was so visceral. Whichever way the election <laughs> goes, millions of people are going to be some combination of angry, disappointed, sad, scared. <laughs> so one last thought. Yeah. 
What do you think the journalist's job will be after the election results come out? Well, we have to cover the hell out of the story, uh, which you know that's that's our basic task always, without fear or favor. Um, we should not. If um, Donald Trump has won the presidency and becomes President Trump, we should not dwell on, bring up uh, all the things he said during this ugly campaign. Uh, we should judge him on his acts, on his deeds, on, on what he does. And uh, I, at least, would give him uh, the benefit of the doubt. Uh, I'm a big believer in democracy. I'm a big believer in the voter in the booth pulling the lever that's what it's all about. And if the majority of Americans want Donald Trump to be our president, uh, there has to be some wisdom there at some level. And, and we have to uh, respect that as journalists and um, report vigorously um, and investigatively and in every way we can on, on what he does, because we know that he's done a lot of very shady things. Now, would he draw a line under that? Um, again, we have to give him the benefit of the doubt, but we will be doubting. A lot. Uh, the other thing I would just say, you know, there are very divided. I would love to see a story about a, you know, community in America, a town or whatever that's been roughly 50-50. And this has been a very, you know, friendships have broken down over this. I mean, this is not a normal campaign. I mean, people who are anti-Trump and people who are pro-Trump, friendships have ended over this. But it would be interesting to see a a piece, maybe with a positive message, if there were one, of, of you know, communities. And that's what America does, you know. That's what America's about. It's about civilized disagreement, about the fact that we can move forward over differences. So it would be interesting to see a piece where maybe there was some glimmer of um, that kind of reconciliation. <laughs> Let's hope so. Yeah. I've been speaking today with New York Times columnist Roger Cohen. Thank yeah. you for being with us. Thank you. This is Elaine Monaghan for Profiles. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. Josh Brewer is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.